need to be conscious and aware of what's pulling our hearts in certain directions. We need to be careful about that. And we're in this sermon series called Focal Point. We're looking at this idea that Jesus is the focal point of Scripture. All of Scripture points us to Jesus Christ. So we're walking from Genesis to Revelation to get the big picture of Scripture and understand how every step along the way in Scripture we are being pointed to Jesus Christ. We've already covered creation and the fall. We looked at the call of Abraham. God calls this man Abraham and his, his offspring into a relationship with God. God rescues them out of Egypt and saves them, brings them into the wilderness and gives them his, the, the law and the tabernacle. Uh, we looked at, last week, we looked at the entering into the promised land in this time of chaos known as the time of the judges. So we've walked up to this point. If you're keeping track, basically we've covered Genesis through the book of Ruth. That's, that's about how far we are so far. Today we'll get through First and Second Samuel and a little of the ways through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. We are picking up the pace as we go. We can't look at every chapter or certainly not every word. But I want to help you to get the big picture. And so we're coming into this time that's known as the time of the kings. We shift from these local leaders, kind of heroes that rise up to help save the people during the time of judges, and then they sort of fade into the background for a while, and then somebody else rises up. And now we're moving to a time when the people cry out for a king. And God gives them a king. And for about another 400 years, we have this time of the kings. And it's interesting, after the chaos of the judges, and the people say, we, we want this king. God had told them in the law that he was their king. They were to trust him and let him be their leader, but they're struggling with that. And God knew, and I think this is so cool, God didn't want them to have a king, but he knew they would want a king, and he puts in the law how a king should work. And I just love that about God, that he's planned this in advance to help them to know how to go about doing this. Now, today, I just want to look at the first of the two kings because they're in some way representative of all the rest of the kings. Uh, and we'll talk about more of the kings later in a couple weeks when we come back to that. But I want to start by looking at the first king of Israel, who is King Saul. Now, just need to say at the outset, this is not Saul Paul of the New Testament, okay? This is a different guy. It's confusing sometimes when it's the same name. King Saul is the first king of Israel. Turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. And what I want to show you this morning is that there is a difference in the direction of the heart of Saul and David. The Bible is very clear in pointing out that their hearts are driven by or going in different directions. King Saul has a heart that is driven by fear. It's driven by fear. Over and over again, Scripture emphasizes that Saul is taking certain steps or making certain decisions because of his fear. Fear takes many forms. You know, often we think of fear as someone who's just maybe frozen or stuck or, or maybe, you know, active in the sense of running away. 
we think of kind of this anxiety and dread and worry, and that's true, that's fear. But fear can look differently. Fear can take other forms. Fear can, at times, look like courage. That person that's just so bold and people just want to follow them, sometimes that person is being driven by fear because they're so, they're so afraid of losing their followers. Fear can at times look like wisdom. Someone who has to have all the answers and be the smart one, always giving advice, always having the final word and knowledge on every situation, sometimes that's driven by a fear of, I don't want people to think less of me. I want them to think that I'm the expert. Fear can look like many different things. Sometimes fear looks like the opposite of what we think of as fear. My point in this is that sometimes bold action and bold thinking can actually be fear in disguise. We'll say that again. Sometimes, not always, sometimes bold action and bold thinking can often be fear in, descri- in disguise. Some of the strongest leaders are driven by fear. And when we come to King Saul, I believe that's exactly what we see. Now, he is the first king over Israel. We're first introduced to him in 1 Samuel, and he's just a young guy. He's helping his dad. He's kind of on this mission. Some donkeys have run away. I'm sure we can all identify those donkeys. They've run away, and he's got to go find them. And I mean, like, by run away, they're not across the street. I mean, this goes on for days. He's looking for these poor donkeys. Or the poor Saul's looking for the donkeys. But then we come to this man named Samuel. Samuel is a prophet and in many ways is kind of the last of the judges of Israel. He's kind of the tail end of the judges period. The last one that was risen up. But he also has this unique role that he is a prophet. God gives him messages to give to other people. And God talks to Samuel and tells him to go meet with Saul and anoint Saul as king. Now again, Saul's just a guy out looking for donkeys. And Samuel is about to anoint him as king. Let me read for us uh, 1 Samuel 10, 1 through 8. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil. This is after he meets Saul and he drops this bombshell on him. You're gonna, God has chosen you as the king. Samuel takes a flask of olive oil, pours it on Saul's head, and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what should I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. Remember this part. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal, 
I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. There's a lot of details in there that I think as we read them, our eyes start kind of glazing over like, what does this have to do with anything? Understand this. Saul is hearing this word, this idea for the first time that he's going to be king. And I imagine he's got some doubts. I would have some doubts. What are you talking about? A, we don't have a king. There's no such thing as a king in Israel. And you're telling me I'm going to be the king. B, how is this one guy in a house somewhere going to anoint oil on my head and suddenly I'm going to be king over all of these people? How is this going to happen? So all of these little nitpicky details, understand what they are. It is God's mercy to Saul saying, I am going to confirm this to you. Every single one of those little things, they were carrying this many pieces of bread, they gave you this many pieces of bread, every single one was very specific, and every single one came true. So that Saul knew this is the real deal. God has made a promise. And one of the things that's very specific that Samuel says to Saul is to give these instructions. He says to wait at Gilgal until Samuel comes. And he was to wait for seven days and then Samuel will show up and offer a sacrifice. Samuel gathers the people of Israel together for this grand announcement. God has given us a king. And the way they make this announcement is they do what's called casting lots. It's kind of like rolling dice. But they would put names of the heads of the family on these stones, or they would have different stones representing each family. They would kind of put it in a sack or a a cloth or something. And there's many different ways to do it. But the gist of it was that God would direct this. Now, I know we look at this and say, but isn't that just like gambling? Isn't that just chance? Not in this instance, because they were trusting God to do this, and God commanded them that he would work this way. Okay, so this is very different. Don't go to the the craps table and think, oh, God's going to direct the dice. It's a little different, okay? And he might direct them, and you might not like it. it. But, But God has already picked Saul. So now they're casting lots. What happens? What happens if it doesn't fall on Saul? But that's not the way our God works. And so sure enough, they go through the heads of the families, the clans. They narrow it down to Saul's individual family and then eventually to his individual name. And so they're all looking around saying, where is he? And in 1 Samuel 10, 22, we're told this. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. Some translations say baggage. Okay, so he's hiding among the baggage. Here's this great leader. Now, one of the things that scripture tells us is that when Samuel sees him, actually it's when the people see him, it's in verse 23 here. uh, They ran out and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Look at him! He's amazing. Look at this king. He's so tall and so strong, and he's going to be this fearless leader. They found him hiding among the baggage. I mean, what are you going to do? But the the interesting thing here is that when we are first introduced to Saul in this picture, 
One of the things that's emphasized is that they're all looking at how impressive he looks on the outside. We learn a lot about Saul in this passage. He has this promise from God that has been specifically and repeatedly confirmed to him through these very unique set of circumstances. He knows that God has chosen him. He knows that he is going to be the king, and yet he is hiding. Now, at this point, sometimes preachers, teachers, they want to give Saul the, the, the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he just wasn't quite ready for leadership. Maybe he's just a little afraid of all the attention. I don't think so. Because the rest of Saul's story shows us somebody very different. We see that Saul is the king that the people want. They wanted a king like the other nations around them. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, they said to him, You are old, they're talking to Samuel here, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But dad, my friend down the street, they have a king. Why can't we have a king? Come on, dad. I want to be like my neighbor. Grown-ups are not immune to such things. They want to be like the nations around them. They are being driven by fear, and they want a king that is impressive, that's going to look kingly. And so if we go back to when Saul is presented as king, there's this very important description of Saul when he's presented to the, the, the people. And we looked at it already, which is that he stands taller than anybody else and he looks powerful and strong and kingly. Nobody asked about his heart. Nobody asked if he was a good person. Nobody thought to discuss whether this was a man after God's heart or not. But as we move forward, we're shown again and again that Saul shows fear in the face of difficulty. If we fast forward a little bit, in 1 Samuel 13, Israel is facing a battle with the Philistines. And Saul has shown up. He's risen an army, which is no small feat because the the Israelites are kind of all going their own way at this time. And it's hard to get them all going in the same direction, but he gets an army of sorts. We are told that he has an army of about 3,000 men. Not bad. And then we're told about the Philistine army. 3,000 chariots with 6,000 men in the chariots and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I'm no military strategist. Pretty sure Saul's in big trouble. They're greatly outnumbered just by manpower And they're severely overwhelmed by by the things that the other army has. These chariots would have been just brutal in battle, especially under certain circumstances. They are not in a good situation. They're looking at this and thinking, we are in big trouble. In fact, we're told some of the Israelites run into caves and ditches and into the woods. They're going into hiding. Some leave Israel altogether. They say, we're out of here. I'm not, we're not going to win this. Things do not look good for Saul. Now, if you remember, Samuel gave Saul very specific instructions. At a certain point, he was to go ahead of Samuel to Gilgal, to the Philistine outpost. 
Guess where this is all taking place? It's at Gilgal, at the Philistine outpost. That's where this battle is set. That's where the lines have been drawn. And Saul knows, based on what Samuel's told him, he is supposed to wait there seven days. But the clock is ticking and the people are running away. Saul is losing the support of the people and he is losing what little army he has. And he waits and he waits and he waits and he decides he's not going to wait any longer. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 9 and 10 says this. So he said, this is Saul speaking, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Now, I know in our culture, this, we're so far removed from this, we may not quite understand. This was an offering the king was not to make. Samuel was to make this offering on behalf of the king and the people. Saul had been commanded by Samuel and through Samuel by God to wait for Samuel. This was part of his act of trusting in the Lord, that this battle belonged to the Lord. But he didn't trust. He got afraid. Saul offers the sacrifice. It seems like he's trying to honor God. Well, doesn't he just have basically a good heart? He's kind of trying to do the right thing. No, that's not it. Instead of trusting the Lord, he's taking matters into his own hands. He takes a role that was not his. And he overrules the commands of God because he is afraid. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 to 14, Samuel says to him, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. God knows Saul's heart. The people wanted a king. They wanted a king just like everybody else. And God gave it to them. Which is where we have to check the condition of our hearts. Sometimes God's greatest act of discipline on us is giving us exactly what we want. And so often when we don't get what we want, we look at God and say, you're this mean, horrible, awful God. This is what I want and you're not giving it to me. That may be his mercy toward you. But here God gave them the king that they wanted. And he was not a good king. Saul did not obey God because Saul was afraid of losing his army, losing the people, and losing the battle. But the whole success in the battle was going to hang on him trusting God. The one thing he did not do. He acted out of fear. Let's look at one more scene with Saul. Saul goes to battle. This is another battle. And he's told by God not to keep any of the plunder for himself. And his men were not to keep any of the plunder. That was unusual. Usually the, the men that were involved in the battle, they could keep some of the spoils from the battle to help support their families. But in this case, God said no. But Saul, after the battle, he and his men keep everything that is the best of the best. 
and they refuse to obey the Lord. And after the battle, Samuel confronts him in 1 Samuel 15, 19. <laughs> says this, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul answers, he justifies himself and he says this, but I did obey. It's like a child telling a parent, I, I told you not to take a cookie, and you took a cookie. Well, I was obeying, though, because so-and-so was hungry, and I thought they needed a cookie. I'm just going to eat with them. Well, so-and-so did it, so I had to. That's what Saul's doing here, but I did obey. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Oh, we just kept them so we could worship God. And again, we, we might be tempted to give the benefit of the doubt, and that's good. God bless you for being merciful people. But the Bible shows that Paul or Saul's heart, rather, is in completely the wrong place. He wants credit for what he has done, but what he has done is disobey the Lord. And his excuse falls short. Samuel sees right through it in 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in, as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you. That last phrase there is so important. What Samuel is calling Saul out on, what he's challenging him with, is he's saying, Saul, you're practicing idolatry. You've put something else in the place of God. And in this case, he calls out his arrogance. You're trusting in yourself instead of entrusting in the Lord. You might say, wait a minute, what idol is he worshiping? He's, he wants to sacrifice to the Lord. He's not going after these foreign idols. What is the idol in this passage? It is Saul. Saul is the idol. He has made himself an idol. He is trusting in his own ways and his own strength. And what God says is that he does not ultimately need our outward acts of worship. What he desires is a heart whose direction is set on him that flows out of us in obedience. Our good intentions may actually lead us to kick God off the throne and put ourselves in his place. This is why when so many people say, well, oh, I know the gospel's good and it's good to follow the Lord and trust, but I mean, come on, so-and-so's just, they're having good intentions. They're just trying to do the right thing. And that's good. That can be very helpful. But if they're not trusting in the Lord and they're denying that God is the king of the universe to whom we owe our allegiance and our obedience, then we are practicing idolatry. And the number one sin that the Israelites are called out on over and over and over again is idolatry. 1 Samuel 15, 24 to 25. Then Saul said to Samuel, so Saul's going to respond. Look at his response. I have sinned. It's good. I violated the Lord's command and your instruction. It's good. It's a good, honest response to, to a good, solid rebuke. But then he goes on. 
I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. He tries to deflect the blame to other people. He tries to justify what he did as necessary given the situation. Saul's action, though, comes from his heart. And his heart is driven by fear. Samuel turns to walk away. At this point, he knows the Lord has rejected Saul as king. And and he needs to go elsewhere to do his job as a prophet. And as he's walking away, Saul grabs him. And Saul says in chapter 15, verse 30, Saul replied, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. And there's a really important word there. The Lord, your God. Saul is no longer even claiming the one true God as his God. And what he wants in this situation is not true and authentic repentance and worship of the Lord. What he wants is to save face. He is afraid of people seeing Samuel walk away and going, what's going on with our king? He says, please come and honor me before these these people. Do not make me look bad. That's what Saul is afraid of. He is more concerned about the people's honor of him than he is of obedience in the glory of the Lord. We see that Saul has this heart of fear, and that fear often shows itself in pride and arrogance. Anybody that saw Saul from a distance, any of these soldiers would have thought, man, he's a strong leader. Look, he's taking action. He's doing great things. But we are given the view behind the closed door of Saul's heart. And what we see is a heart that's full of fear. And God was looking for someone who would trust him and follow him. And so we come to King David. King David is a king whose heart is driven by faith. Not a perfect man. If you know anything about his life, we'll look at that in a moment. He's not a perfect man, but he is driven by faith. As we are introduced to David, the pattern kind of follows similar to Saul. He, uh, he's just going about his, his daily stuff, and Saul shows up at his house to find the next king. They don't even call David in. He's too much of a pipsqueak, and he's too young, and he's out in the fields. They don't even call him in to have Samuel look at him. Samuel looks at David's brothers, and again, he's like, oh, they're all so impressive. Surely one of them's the king. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read that the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. He's talking about some of these other brothers. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David is called then, and he's anointed as king over Israel. Understand Saul is still king. He is still reigning over all of Israel. And now David has been appointed as king. David is probably about 15 years old when this happens. He's just a kid. And he will not officially be recognized as the king of anything for another seven years. And he will not become the king over all of Israel for another seven years after that. 
So a total of about 14 or 15 years before David actually sees the fulfillment of this promise. And do you know what he does for those 7 to 14 years? He trusts the Lord day in and day out. Look at 1 Samuel 17. In verses 4 to 11, we see this very famous situation where the Israelites are drawn up in battle again against the Philistines and we have this this man, Goliath, that comes out. You've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. People of Israel are afraid. They won't go out and face him. This was a known thing in these cultures. Each culture or each army could choose a champion and the winner between those two champions would be the winner of the battle. Kind of saved uh, some, some people dying in battle. So this was a known thing, but they're all afraid. And then David shows up and he sees things differently. Look at verses 34 to 37 of 1 Samuel 17. David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David's not saying, I'm so great, I can handle this. David is saying, the Lord is so great, he can deal with this. You know the rest of that story. David goes out, this little boy against this giant soldier. And the Lord gives him victory in that battle. And as David steps onto the field, he says these powerful words in in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know what? That David is so powerful and is the next great king? No, that there is a God in Israel. That's David's heart right there. Sure enough, God gives David victory over Goliath. But there's one more scene we have to look at to understand David. Maybe a lesser known story. But the day comes when he's a bit older and he doesn't go out to battle with his family or with his soldiers. And in 2 Samuel 11, we're told that he stays home and he looks out from his property and he sees a woman bathing on her roof. He has someone bring her to him. She sleeps, he sleeps with her and gets her pregnant. Through a series of events, he tries to cover up his sin and ends up murdering her husband. And we see the the consequences of this action. He is confronted in his sin. And I want you to see his response. Look at Samuel 12, verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. 
If you want a picture of repentance, there it is. I have done wrong, and the person I have wronged is ultimately God. Now, David knows he's wronged Bathsheba, certainly wronged her husband. But at the core, he understands he took the place of God in this situation. And he repents. There's no excuse, there's no justification, and there's no blame. A heart of repentance shows a true heart of faith. We don't have time to look at it, but in your own time, I encourage you to read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote at this time in his life when he was confronted with his sin. These two kings show completely different heart directions. Saul is driven by fear. David is driven by faith. And in Acts chapter 13, verses 21 to 22, in the New Testament, we're told this. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Why is he called a man after God's own heart? Because he was perfect and sinless and never did anything wrong? No. Because the direction of his heart His greatest longing in his life was to praise the Lord God Almighty, to trust Him and to worship Him in every given situation. Did he mess up at times? Absolutely. But even in his repentance, he shows the state of his heart. And because of this, in 2 Samuel 7, and again, I won't read it, But 2 Samuel 7 has another one of the most important promises in all of Scripture. We looked at in in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 when God makes this covenant with Abraham. And he promised to bless Abraham and Abraham's offspring and to give him a place that their family would live, this place of Israel. All of that gets repeated to David in 2 Samuel 7. And there's one thing added. David's offspring would rule on the throne of Israel forever and ever. And then the son Solomon is born and he becomes king. He's a pretty good king. Seems pretty smart. He has some major failures as well. But things don't get drastically better because Solomon was not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David. One would come from David's family who will truly and ultimately sit on the throne, not just of Israel, but of everything. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. He's the focal point of this whole promise to David. And so as we read these scriptures and as we learn about these these huge trends in the history of Israel, we need to ask ourselves, what's the direction of our heart? Where are you being pulled? Do you have a heart of fear or a heart of faith? When push comes to shove and things get difficult... And your, your reputation is on the line. Are you going to trust and follow and obey? Or are you going to go your own way? Put yourself on the throne and not obey the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the one true and perfect King, Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. All of this points ahead to him. He is the one 
of the tribe of David, of the family of David, qualified to sit on the throne. And not just by his lineage, but also because he went to the cross and died. And then he rose again, conquering sin and death. And he rules forever and ever. And so I pray each one of us would ask, who rules in our hearts? Is it us? And are we going to cling to that through fear that sometimes masquerades as boldness and sometimes grips us as anxiety? Or are we going to trust you in faith and constantly remind ourselves, you are God, we are not, and we will trust you and follow you. And when we sin and struggle, we will repent and confess and look to you and trust in you and your mercy and grace. And then we will step out in obedience. May our heartstrings be pulled, tugged day in and day out in the direction of trusting in you, come what may. In your name we pray, amen.